Today we begin a new series on suffering. It's something all of us go through at one point or another, and it causes us to ask all sorts of questions like, why do we suffer? Why does God let us suffer? And what do we do about our suffering? Some of you have struggled in specific ways. When I invited you to share topics you'd like to hear about, some of you said suffering is one of them because you are Uh, You are suffering as you get up there in years. I know this is only a a tiny fragment of what some of you are going through, but I've seen more doctors in the last three years than in my entire life. What I wouldn't give to go back to the time before all those health issues. How do you deal with pain that just won't go away? We'll also take some time to look at poverty. So much of the world suffers because they don't have access to the most basic of needs like food, water, and shelter, what should we do about that? But one of the most vexing challenges we face as Christians is the person who says, God let me suffer so I stop believing in God, or I don't care about God. And that leads to this, if God lets people like me suffer, then I don't want to serve God. Why should we serve God if he won't help us? We are going to dig into this seemingly unanswerable question. We start with wisdom, which is the ability to use knowledge in good and helpful ways. So we're going to hear a scripture from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12 through 18. Uh, Marguerite's going to read that for us this morning. So I invite you now to hear God's word. I, the teacher, when king over Israel in Jerusalem applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun, and see, all is vanity and a chasing after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, I perceived that this also is but a chasing after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy word. And from 1 Peter 4, 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same intention, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. I invite you to join me in our prayer of preparation. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redemption. About a month ago, I was on my bike for some exercise. At one point, I realized that I'm getting older, which means if I don't do anything about it, 
I'll get tired and sick and fat much easier if I don't change my habits. So I started biking every day. On my birthday, my wife Emily bought me this special attachment for my bicycle. I know it sounds crazy, but it lets me attach my dog to the bicycle so both of us can get our exercise. People are sure that means I am going to fall or crash, but I'm six months in with a clean record. (laughs) But a month ago, I was on my bike coming up a really big hill on Hillsdale Avenue, and as I'm working hard, huffing and puffing my way up, this red car got really close to me, uncomfortably close. Now, you got to understand, I rode this same bike on the city streets of Philadelphia. I have been pretty darn close to a lot of cars, but this one really got me worried. And I heard them say, I think, you know, as they rolled down the window, you know, that is just really wrong. And they took off. Now, I'm not actually entirely sure what that person was referring to. It's possible that this woman just agreed with my wife that those exercise shorts I've been wearing every day for 14 years really need to go in the trash. Or maybe she just saw me adjusting that attachment with a few smacks, and she thought I was hitting my dog. That, that would have been awful if that's what was going on. But my best guess is she thinks attaching my dog to a bicycle is not only strange, it's reckless and wrong. She wouldn't be the only person that thinks that. Most people are delighted when they see my dog Pearl running on this thing. But every once in a while, I get some flack. People are worried for me or for my dog and think the whole thing is just a bad idea. I think it's not fair that folks don't get to see how absolutely excited Pearl is to go on our bike walks or that my dog is faster than just about any other, and how with the bike she finally gets to stretch her legs and go full speed. But that's life. People just don't know the whole story. I mentioned this incident with the car and the comment she made to Emily, my wife, and and I said, I get more negative responses from people for that dog bike attachment than for anything I've ever done in my whole life, which is true, by the way, but Emily's response was so telling. She said, welcome to my world, where people from all walks of life take it upon themselves to offer up random critiques to her. Most often it is in regards to how she is parenting our five and seven-year-old. Moms deal with this kind of stuff all the time, and here I am complaining about a totally optional convenience. And the fact that I have an option to use that attachment or not is an important reminder to me that so much of the suffering we experience is suffering of our own making. I imagine you could think of ways in which you have suffered and how maybe you contributed to it yourself. Even something like getting sick can be the result of a choice we make. We may not eat the way we know we are supposed to or exercise enough for our own good. When there is a play date, Emily and I tell people if our kids are sick, and sometimes they or we will say, it's okay, we aren't afraid of germs. We're taking a chance knowing that we very well may get sick. We make our own suffering. 
Even if you don't intentionally choose to be around sick people, you at least chose to be around people knowing it's possible they would be sick. You could have worn a mask, right? I'm reading a book about a doctor trying to make hospitals better, and he's saying getting hospital staff to wash their hands so they don't spread disease is nearly impossible because people are in and out, in and out, in and out all day long into hospital rooms. If they actually stop to wash their hands the right way, 15 minutes out of every hour working would be spent exclusively on washing hands. You think hospital bills are bad now, just imagine them 25% higher because everyone is spending a quarter of their time cleaning up from the last person they visited. The point is, suffering can feel like something that is out of our control, but really, we do have at least some level of control of our suffering. The author of Ecclesiastes had a sense of this. Throughout the book, he talks about wisdom, about how he pursues it and tests it against other ways of living. In the end, though, he finds that his pursuit of wisdom is pretty meaningless. Whether we are in control or not, we still suffer. He says living by wisdom or living by madness or folly, it results in the same thing. It's like chasing after the wind. It's all useless. A different translation of the end of today's verse says it this way. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. What a pessimistic view of the world. The more you know, the wiser you get, the more your sorrow increases. I can understand why when the books of the Bible were first being brought together, there was serious debate about not including Ecclesiastes. This book makes it seem like life itself is useless. It essentially says... What good is anything we do if the end result is we continue to suffer and die? Social scientists will tell you uh, when we experience pain, there are several ways of dealing with it. One is that when we experience pain, we isolate ourselves. That makes sense. It almost seems natural that if you are hurt, you withdraw from the hurt. And if that hurt comes from a person Why wouldn't we withdraw from people? Now, you might see the problem right away. We don't withdraw from the person who hurt us. We withdraw from people in general. We create barriers between us and everyone else so we can't get hurt again. That's not healthy. We were created to be social, to make connections with others. So isolation is just another form of self-inflicted pain and suffering. Another way we deal with hurt is through distraction. We simply busy ourselves with other matters or try our best to ignore that there was ever a problem to begin with. This approach might work for a while, but eventually wounds that are deep enough will fester. Like an infection, they poison our other relationships. For more years than I'd like to admit, this was my 
primary way of dealing with problems. If you ignore it long enough, it will just go away. Now, finally, I know better. I'm grateful that the wisdom of others has taught me a better way. Don't ignore it. Deal with it. Distraction won't solve our pain. There's a third way to deal with suffering. It's something called anchoring. Anchoring is when we remind ourselves of our priorities, of the goals we've set for ourselves. We often do this as Christians. We experience a setback and we say, this may be awful, but I'm a child of God. God loves me. We are anchoring ourselves in who we are, in our values, and in our faith. But as good as anchoring sounds, This really is just like the other two forms. It's trying to deal with suffering by repressing it. So there's a fourth way. A way of suffering that doesn't repress it, but deals with it head on. It's called sublimation. Usually we talk about transforming our pain, but transform isn't a very good word for it. Transformation can be good or bad. There's a new movie coming out called Joker about uh, the Batman villain. The classic story of the Joker is that he's a criminal who falls into a vat of acid and is disfigured by it. In this new movie, he is a struggling clown for hire who is dealing with mental illness. By the end of the movie, he is no longer the man, Arthur Fleck. He is only the deranged Joker. That's a transformation, right? Whether it's good or bad. He's transformed from one thing to another. Sublimation is far better. It is a transformation that harnesses the bad to fuel the creation of good. Instead of blunting our experiences of pain and suffering, we give them a new form. You don't have to search long to see how people transform pain into something beautiful. In fact, some of the most valuable contributions to humanity have come from those who have struggled within their own minds. I think of the poet Sylvia Plath, the author George Orwell, there's Kurt Cobain, all of whom suffered terribly in different ways, but created art and music and books that speak deeply to us in a way that they could not without the pain. Beethoven is world famous for the music he composed in the 1700s. His mother died when he was only nine years old. And just at the height of his creative genius, he began to lose his hearing. He would play masterfully on piano and turn to a roaring, cheering crowd as tears flowed down his face. He was imprisoned in silence. But he turned the pain into music that speaks to us deeply even to this day. They sublimated their pain. They harnessed it for good. This, to me, is the good news. Our suffering is not the end. Richard Rohr, a famous Franciscan friar and writer, says, Pain that is not transformed is transmitted. We seek to sublimate our pain, to turn it to good so that we can end the cycle of suffering and work to build the kingdom of God here on earth.
the author of Ecclesiastes begins the book by saying, wisdom and knowledge are useless. They only bring more pain. But by the end of the book, his answer has changed. He recognizes that there is one good we can do in this world, and it has nothing to do with wisdom. He says in chapter 12, fear God and keep his commandments. We are called to be humble in our relationship with God. And his commandments to us are as simple as this. Love your neighbor. Choose love. Choose good over evil. Make good come from your pain. Tom Terrence was a, a white supremacist that went to jail after he tried to bomb a Jewish businessman's home. When in prison, he began reading all sorts of books from history to philosophy to ethics. As he read, he realized his extremist views were a form of enslavement. When he was a kid, he had grown up in church and believed he was a Christian. Even when he was plotting terrorism, he believed he was fighting for God and for his country. But it was a bit of scripture that changed his life. Matthew 16 says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? He knelt on the concrete floor of his prison cell, and he gave his life over to Christ. Years later, he became a pastor of a multiracial congregation. He took the pain and hate of his life and let it be transformed by the friendships of non-whites, by the chaplain who talked with him, by the women's Bible study who prayed for him, and by the Jewish attorney who vouched for him before the court. And I believe today that if Tom can do it, you can do it. The writer of Ecclesiastes is right. Wisdom alone is vanity. It is like chasing after the wind. It is only through hard work, through direct engagement with our suffering, that we can move from pain to progress. Suffering is not the opposite of beauty and meaning. It is the way to it. So I invite you to be open to the move of the Spirit. Will you let God transform your pain? Will you love God and your neighbor? Let the Lord speak deeply into your life so that he can turn the suffering you experience into something truly beautiful. Amen.